So let me ask you this. Being in HR, I mean, is there something you would want people to know who are listening about their HR team that they're not the boogeyman? Anthony, what's up? Welcome to Millennial Manhood. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this was a journey of ours. Uh, we met via LinkedIn, um, and I just thought you had like the most interesting life ever. <laughs> so for for folks who, who have no idea who you are, what's your story? What's your background? Who's Anthony? What's a 10,000-foot view? Oh, my gosh, 10,000-foot view. So uh, my professional day job is I work in human resources, uh, and I have for about the last 30 years. And uh, it's a career that found me. It wasn't something that I pursued. I just kind of fell into it and uh, we meshed. So I, I love my day job and what I do. But then my passion is really in helping leaders be the best kind of leaders that they can. And that's an outgrowth of, of my day career is working mm-hmm. in HR because I found that as a I advanced in my career and began to work with different levels of leaders that leaders struggled with a number of things. Um, And it wasn't because they didn't want to be good leaders. It was really because they uh, didn't know what good leadership looked like. Mm. And so out of that uh, has evolved what I do, which is a lot of writing, uh, interviews, articles, things like that, trying to put something good back into the world. How um, outside of that, uh, my husband and I have been together 30 years, 33 years actually this year, and uh, I'm a Minnesota native. Now I live in Texas. So that's kind of the 30,000 foot view. Okay. A little, little warmer than Minnesota. Uh, yeah. In, in the uh, nine months out of the year, it is much warmer than Minnesota. Don't miss got- the snow at all. <laughs> I got paired up with a random guy yesterday. I went golfing by myself and I got paired up with a random guy who was a retired, um, retired guy from Minnesota and, yeah. uh, him, him, his commentary on golf were just funny because he's got all the little mannerisms and the terms and, uh, it's just, it's just a interesting, it's very, it's a very different world than Tennessee in the way they speak. So, oh, I, yes, I spent some time in Tennessee when I was a kid, my stepfather, uh, uh, was a roofer, a, a commercial roofer. And so we would travel around occasionally for these jobs. And it was interesting. It was my first experience in the South when coming from, you know, the Northern Midwest and people would say, you got an accent. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. Well, no, you've got an accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, and Nashville's also an anomaly within Tennessee because it's such a melting pot of people from all over the place. So it's not as uh, pronounced, but even, even for Nashville, when he was talking, I was like, Whoa, okay. Now, and I spent a decent amount of time on like Wisconsin. So I, I get it. Um, I, I've heard a lot of those conversations, but anyway, needless to say, played a good round of golf. Like the, the random yeah. dude from Wisconsin, uh, from uh, Minnesota helped me with my golf game. Um, that's great. So you do a lot of writing, as you mentioned, and I'm always curious because when any, 
body goes into some sort of creative outlet that's not their you know it's not their primary job you're, you're not a writer for a living in the sense that like you're not Stephen King where that's all you do right or, or whoever the same way I'm not you know Joe Rogan or Howard Stern or whoever uh, you know the the podcasting that I do as a passion project and something I enjoy and love but you know, I, I've talked about this before. I purposely don't monetize it because I want it to remain a passion project for the time being. Um, so the thing that I'm always curious about is when you're putting yourself out there, whether it's in a written format and some sort of artistic like drawing or painting or whatever, or, or podcasting, spoken voice, you're always putting yourself out there to criticism and to somebody to say, man, you just suck. <laughs> like, you're just <laughs> terrible at this. And for a lot of folks who who work in some sort of corporate setting or whatever it may be, that can be a hard hurdle to jump over. How did you end up writing these articles and, and, and interviewing these folks and, and overcoming, if you had any, some of that negative self-talk of like, who are you to do this? That's a interesting question that you ask. I've always been creative. So prior to doing writing, I, I was artistic in the sense of I did draw and I did paint and my husband, and I had a studio and when those things weren't practical to do anymore, uh, again, out of outgrowth of what I do in my day job, I, I started out very simply for leaders. I would in the morning share some kind of motivational or inspirational quote of the day. So I wasn't actually writing. I was mm. pushing out other content and then the idea came to me in terms of leadership of, you know, how, how did leaders, good leaders, you know, I don't care about bad leaders, how did they get to where they're at? What mm. was their story? And I thought there would be some interest in that. So back in 2012, I think I did my first interview with a, an author. And, and let me kind of back up here and say, when I talk about leadership, most people think of like corporate leaders, managers, things like that. I think of leadership in a very broad sense of the word because I think we're all leaders because mm -hmm. we all have the ability to influence and it's how we use that influence. So back in 2012, I did my first interview with an author who had written some, I guess, self-help help books. And I had that self-doubt. I was like, can I do this, mm -hmm. right? Is anybody gonna be interested? But then I took the position of who am I really writing for? Mm. And when I write, I don't write for an audience. I write really for myself and my subject because I want to represent them well. So when I sit down to do a piece, the, the first thing is it's got to be something that interests me, right? So mm -hmm. like you and I connected on LinkedIn when I connect with somebody and I say, hey, would you want to do an interview or can I do an article about what you're working on? It's got to be something that interests me. Yeah. So it's got to be something that's positive or, you know, it's like, oh, I want to talk to that person, you know. Um, so I really approach it from writing for myself. And uh, I try to, you know, shut down all of that negative kind of self dialogue that we all have going on. Um, and except that it's not going to be perfect, right? I'm not Stephen King. Um, I don't aspire to be him or, uh, you know, I'm not looking to uh, win a Pulitzer Prize or something like that. 
So that's kind of the way I approach it. We all have our moments. Obviously, I put a piece out there and then I go back and I read it and I'm like, oh, there's a typo in it. Or, mm. <laughs> you know, that doesn't read right. But it's an evolutionary process. If it makes you feel better, Stephen King always is terrible at his ending. So, like, yeah, he can't finish a book if his life depended on it. So, well, and as a writer, I think you struggle. I mean, I've got pieces that will sit sometimes. It's it, maybe I've written a good piece or put together a good interview, but then I can't find that intro or what is that, uh, you know, what is that top line or that introductory statement? Because uh, you're always looking for something that's going to grab somebody's attention, right? It's not just, yeah. hey, you know, I sat down with so and so and we had a conversation. Yeah, there's got to be, be something hook. where there's got to be a hook. So sometimes I'll struggle a little bit with that or even the ending. How do I kind of wrap this up? Uh, but I think that's where maybe that's writer's block, if you will. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, how do you. So I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this somewhat looking through it through my own lens. So one of the things that for me personally with these podcasts was easy. And I think it has to do with more so my personality and just how I operate in life in general. I've always been able to make people feel relatively comfortable, relatively quickly around me. So I've, I think I've honed that skill somewhat since I've podcasted, but it it wasn't some major hurdle I had to overcome. And I understand that's not everybody, like everybody can't necessarily do that. Um, But that's such a big key to getting somebody to have a good conversation. Um, How do you approach that comfort level, especially when it's in writing? And so, and you know, if it's in writing, that means somebody can Google you and they don't even, they don't even have to read the whole thing. They don't even have to uh, analyze the context. They don't have to see your facial expression. They can just take one sentence and take it out of context and, and hate you forever. <laughs> you know? So how do you, how do you go about getting people comfortable when you're interviewing them, helping them understand, trying to get the true story and trying to get the true answer behind the question that you asked? So when I started doing interviews, I never sat down with people and had conversations like you and I are, but mm-hmm. I wanted it to sound conversational Mm-hmm. So when I would approach somebody and say, would you like to do an interview uh, to, to build that comfort level? It's really setting the expectation for them. So the interview is really theirs and I want to represent them in a, a good light. So I let them know that they always have final approval mm-hmm. before anything goes out. So if they, I send them something, they want to do edits or they, again, to your point, you don't like the way this sounds or you want to change that, we'll do that because again, there's enough negative stuff out in the world. I want to put out something positive. And what I would originally do is I would send my subjects just a list of questions, uh, kind of benign when I would get their answers back. Then I would build the conversational tone around that based on what they said. So I might ask, you know, what makes a great leader? That's a pretty simple question. But then based on their answer, uh, I may flush that out, you know. So it it sounds, it has a very conversational tone to it. Only recently, I think in the last year, have I done things like what we're doing. Uh, Not really podcasting, but maybe we'll do a Zoom, I'll record it, and then I'll transcribe it. Mm -hmm. So it 
it is easier, but I always approach it from the conversation. Right? I don't, while I might have questions in mind, it's like you and I, well, let's just see where this goes. And, you know, I'll take that recording uh, and I'll, you know, kind of chop it up, if you will, and, and find those nuggets and pieces that I think will be of interest. So, so what makes a good leader? You know, I think that the, the key to good leadership is relationships. That, that's the bottom line. You can't be a good leader if you don't know how to build connections with people. And that means it's cliche, but it's meeting people where they are, if you will. Because you can't elevate people if you don't start out at their level. Yeah. So to me, that's that's the foundation. And when I'm dealing with leaders who are struggling, you know, it's typically because they've never seen or experienced good leadership. You know, it's like a toolbox. If all you have in your toolbox is a hammer, everything's a nail, right? So if all you've experienced is poor, bad, or mediocre leadership, I mean, that's your benchmark right there. Mm -hmm. I mean that's what you're going to emulate. So I try to get them to see what good leadership looks and sounds like. Yeah. That's interesting. Which talked about relationships and the, and seeing the good leadership and especially in in corporate settings. Man, have I had some terrible like managers and bosses and, oh, and I've had some great I've I have had too. Some, yeah, and I've had some great ones. And I wonder since you started doing these interviews. So you said what, 2011, 12? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a decade. 2012, I think is. Yes. Yeah, it's a decade. Have you seen an evolution in how the people you're interviewing approach that question? I don't know if I've seen an evolution per se. I think the evolution is in their own experience, right? So again, how they developed as a leader. And to your point, it's making mistakes or it's it's looking at the leaders they've had and saying, uh, that's who I want to be or that's not who I want to be. Uh, and it's the journey, right? It's not the destination. So I don't know that there's a big aha or transformation in leadership. I think at least over the decade that I've been writing. Now, I think over a longer period of time, we've absolutely seen an evolution in, in leadership, right? If you go back in 20th century, leadership was very autocratic, right? The, the leader was up here, everybody else was down here. Um, it was more authoritarian, if you will. I think we've evolved because the workforce has also evolved organizations have evolved where there's not that necessary separation between who I am in my personal life and who I am on the job, right? We've gotten to this point where we want people to kind of incorporate that, but that brings with it certain challenges, right? So that autocratic authoritarian leadership doesn't work when you're trying to do that. Um, you know, that's where you have to build relationships. You have to meet people where they are. Uh, you know, how I lead you is going to be different from how I lead this person maybe over here. 
and that doesn't mean it's inconsistent. It just means I'm tailoring things specifically to who you are. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the most impactful books I ever read, actually, I read the book after I saw him speak, was I saw Simon Simon Sinek speak in, I guess, 2014, 2015, whenever Leaders Eat Last came out. And it was the first time I had heard somebody articulate the concept of the reason we give others leadership authority is because we also give them leadership responsibility. And we feel betrayed by our leaders when they, when they're not holding up their end of the bargain of the responsibility portion. Okay. And again, it comes all down to the concept of, you know, the leaders will eat the last piece of meat after a hunt, yada, yada, yada. So I'm wondering, maybe there hasn't been an evolution in since 2012 that you've seen per se, but have you seen a difference in the way different generations approach it? Maybe the boomers who did grow up in that 50s, 60s, you're probably not interviewing anybody who was born in, you know, 1910 or anything. Um, I guess that would be really cool. But it would be, but yeah, I, I haven't had that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, they're they're not just like walking around the street like la da 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 da. I'd like to be interviewed. Um, but yeah, have you seen a different a different approach in in the ways that like maybe millennials versus Gen Xers, which I don't I don't even know if Gen Z is are in in any leadership roles per se yet versus Boomers. Uh, have you seen a difference there? I think there is a difference. I'm not sure that I can pinpoint. I, I definitely think the, the blurring of my personal life and my work life is more prevalent amongst, you know, the younger generations, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what is important to them is, you know, more, I hate this because it's so cliche, work-life balance, if you will. Right. I need to be able to take care of my family and my personal things and have my job. Uh, I don't, I, you know, there's so many variables, right? So that's just one thin layer of the onion. You have other things that impact, influence that. So, you know, you have the organizational structure and impact. What kind of organization do you work for? You also have demographics in terms of, both uh, cultural and socioeconomic, where are you in terms of, you know, that kind of ladder, Uh, I would say even geographical from, you know, if we look at the United States, I'm in Texas versus somebody who's in California versus somebody in New York, I think all of those things play into it. So it's both simple and complicated at the same time. Yeah. But it's definitely changed and it's definitely different. I think also the work ethic has changed as well as it as well as the corporate approach to leadership. Oh, oh, elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by work ethic has changed. You know, when I when I came up and I'll you know, I'm fifty four, so when I started my career uh, it was, you know, you went to work every day. You just didn't miss work, right? Yeah. I mean, or you would lose your job. Uh, you didn't question authority, right? You wouldn't talk back to your boss. 
those things, from my perspective, and I, I don't want to make a blanket statement, they've changed. I mean, I work mm-hmm. in human resources. I do employee relations. The things that I see, and I think they're representative of our society as a whole, the things that I see some employees say to like their manager, or even sometimes me, I'm like, I would have never dreamed of doing that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I would have never dreamed of just not showing up for work. I mean, and and again, I don't want to make a blanket statement that everybody's like that, but there there are individuals like that. And over the course of my career, I've seen it a little bit more, maybe a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that I've seen it before. So those individuals, they're ju- to me, their job isn't the most important thing. And I'm not saying that they're they're lazy or anything or they don't care. What I'm saying is where, say, my parents' generation, if your child was sick, you'd send your kid to school because I have to go to work. Yeah. And, in today, parents might be, well, my child is more important than my job, right? Do um, you, so do you so think the priorities, that, I think, have shifted? I didn't mean, I don't want to cut you off on that, but I really want to tap in on this. Do you think that's because employees have more leverage in the marketplace now? I, I know we're all talking about like there's a shortage this very moment, but really over the last decade or so, employees have built and received and, and gotten the leverage in the marketplace, especially educated white collar jobs? I, I think there is a leverage. I mean, I think that's definitely one aspect of it. I think, you know, that too kind of ebbs and flows and it's it's multi-layered. Obviously, the economy drives a lot of that. Today, we're in a situation that none of us ever imagined. I don't yeah. believe there's a workforce shortage. Yeah. Okay. There's. I, I think there's plenty of people. I mean, if we look at unemployment, I, I think the problem there is sometimes expectations on both sides, right? Not, so yeah. Especially right now, if you're out looking for a job, I mean, we've got still this pandemic going on. You're probably looking for something that offers you flexibility. Maybe it's a remote work environment. Um, things again, where you can have that work-life balance that you need given our situation on the employer side, I think sometimes there's this unrealistic expectation, right? So I've got a position, I want a, a bachelor's degree and 10 years of experience. Yeah. Okay. Well, are you limiting yourself with that? I mean, if you find the right person, personality, culture fit for the position with some of the skills, are those skills that that individual doesn't have, you know, are those things that you can teach them? Um, I would rather bring somebody in that I could maybe mold Mm -hmm. to fit in certain aspects than somebody where I have to break a bunch of maybe bad habits or, uh, you know, things like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I I think the expectation, I mean, all conflict is a result of unmet expectations. That's literally what it comes down to. I I just think it's so interesting because 
I mean, I even think about it in my own life. I enjoy working. I think I'm fairly decent at what I do. I would, I would even say good. It's not the most important thing in my life. I mean, I put in my work, I put right. in my hours, I put in everything, but it, it is not the most important thing in my life. It is like number three or four on the list. And part of that, maybe for me, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur since I was like in third grade selling candy to fellow classmates. So I also know I can go make money a million different ways. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case for everybody who feels that way about the work not being the most important thing. I think that is for me what contributes probably the most to that mindset. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't take work seriously. It's just a, it's just a, a different flow on it. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've talked to family members. I've talked to friends with these bad managers who are basically micromanaging them through the pandemic and all these different things. And, and they're, they're, I mean, one of them, they're freaking home builder. They're crushing it. <laughs> like they're, they're making more money and have more jobs and they know what to do with. And they're over here micromanaging. It's like, hold on, man, like slow down, let these people have some freedom and they won't all quit on you like they did last month. Right. So there is a sense of, but it might also be that natural transition. I mean, quite frankly, if we look at the early 20th century, late 19th century, you know, children working in coal mines, like that was a horrible, horrible life. Adults working in coal mines, that was a horrible, horrible life. And as time went on, people were like, I'm not willing to do that anymore. <laughs> Adjust your expectations, employer. So it might also be a natural evolution. And I agree with that, right? Uh, you have to take a, a, a longer look at how the workforce and workplace changes I don't think it's something where you can say, you know, you will see major shifts over shorter periods of time, a decade. I think you have to have, you know, maybe multiple decades, at least 20 years, you could probably benchmark changes. Definitely, to go back to what you said, I think it's unmet expectations of, employers not being very clear and specific of what a role entitles, you know, what a role is, requires, what the culture of the organization is, and the same for employees, right? What am I really looking for in yeah. this role? What kind of leader do I want? The challenge and the reason I think we see so much poor leadership is because most organizations, again, not all, they identify somebody based on their current role. And I'll give you an example. When I worked in telecom and I supported call centers, which were sales positions, essentially, mm -hmm. you'd have a representative who's a great salesperson, right? Awesome at their job, made all their numbers, met their metrics, and they'd be like, wow, they'd make a great leader. What and so they? they put them in a leadership position and then that person struggles and they fail. Mm. They're like, what happened? You know, such a great person. Well, the problem is that while they may exhibit skills that are great in that role, those are not, you know, being a great salesperson doesn't mean you're going to be a great sales manager. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think you need to have that, that skill set. But leadership is different. So 
the mistake or the shortcoming that organizations have is they put people into these roles and then they don't develop their leadership skills. Mm. They think innately they're going to be successful and it just doesn't work that way. If you, if I look at my career, I didn't just, you know, Hey, I'm a, an employee relations person and all of a sudden I have all this skill and knowledge. It's taken me years of work to get to where I'm at. And thankfully I've had some great leaders who have supported me and imparted their knowledge. So we have to invest in leaders at the corporate level, right? So when you put a individual into a leadership role, you have to provide them the tools and resources related to leadership and people it's not the technical skill right any anybody can learn how to fill out a document and learn a process but it's the softer skills how do i have the conversation with my employee who is struggling or failing what does that sound like right what i meet with managers leaders i say it sounds like the conversation you and i are having we're two adults sitting down and I say, you know, uh, I, I think you're great in this area, but I see that you're really struggling in this. And so how do we overcome that obstacle? Mm. You're not the, you're not the police. You're not the parent, you know, that authoritarian position that bosses used to take just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. I want to be treated as an equal. I know you're in a leadership role. I know that you have a level of control over my career in this organization. So I don't need you to tell me that because you're, if you are, you're speaking the obvious. So let me ask you this being an HR and I deal with HR folks all the time. I call on them all the time as well as CFOs, you know, CHROs, director of benefits, everybody. Um, so my perception's a little different of what maybe the the mainstream perception is of HR. Cause typically at least, at least in my social circle, like when somebody like talks to HR, they're like in trouble. <laughs> that's, yes. the, that's the, that's the perception It's like, Oh man, I got to go to the principal's office. So have you found that to be a hindrance in your ability or your team's ability to really connect with employees over your career, or how have you overcome that? Or, I mean, is there something you would want people to know who are listening about their HR team, that they're not the boogeyman? Yeah. For me personally, that is very disappointing when I hear people say, oh, HR is here. You know, Mm -hmm. we all have to behave. Or to your point, I'm getting called to the principal's office. I think that comes from the way organizations, one, have approached their HR services or support. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in organizations where, yes, HR is absolutely that, right? I, early in my career, I worked for a company and the HR person who basically was in employee rel- relations, um, employees had a nickname for him and it was Todd the box mm. because watch out when Todd comes to your desk with the box, you're getting fired. Mm. I thought that was, you know, that is the absolute worst really representation of HR. Yeah. 
I am literally blessed today to work for such a great organization that looks at what we do differently and really you know in my role it is to balance the best interest of the company as a whole obviously hr has a um, you know fiducial responsibility to the organization uh, to make sure that we are abiding by the law and that we are you know adhering to our policies and being consistent but we have to balance that also with you know our representation of our employees and are we doing the right thing for the employee is the employee being treated the way our culture defines that and expects that um, so you know we walk a fine line in between that so to say that I am only looking out for the company is not true, right? Yeah. I I always say to people, in an essence, we are Switzerland, right? I try to go into every situation being neutral, looking at the facts, looking at both sides, because at the end of the day, I don't have the same vested interest that those parties do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I make a determination based on a viewpoint that those parties can't have. I mean, it's just impossible, right? I, yeah. I, it's like you and I will see something and we may see it totally differently. So that's really the way I approach it in terms of HR. And HR has, has and still does have a bad rap. Some mm-hmm. of that is self-imposed. Right. Again, it's like the leadership thing I was speaking of. We put people into human resource roles. You you have to teach the human element of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Again, I'm, I'm not the police. I'm not, you know, there's lots of things that I'm not. What I am is uh, an advocate. I'm here to make sure that, again, we're being consistent. We're following our policies. We're following the law. But also then incorporating that very human element of what I do. Yeah, I think that's interesting. It's the human element of what you do. Because like, again, it kind of goes back to the whole, like the office the uh, on the show, you know, the HR department's just in the back and, you know, they're doing all this stupid stuff. And they're like, oh, HR's going to do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just the social dynamics in general are just so freaking interesting, especially when you get a bunch of people who, together who essentially are just a bunch of you know babies who grew up i mean literally babies like (laughs) little bitty humans that became big humans uh who the older i get the more i realize we're all just winging it because none of us get a manual when we come out the womb and they're like here's how you here's how you human um right and 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 i think one of the most interesting parts about all of that is how do we treat each other as humans um you know, even even with all the, and you've talked about like the negativity and the divisiveness in society and all these different things. It's really easy to be hateful when you don't know somebody intimately that falls into the category of what you hate. Um, you make a very good point there. We have to be able to step back 
right? And mm-hmm. I know it's impossible for me to put myself in somebody's shoes per se, but to suspend any kind of, you know, judgment or preconception of what somebody is. Mm-hmm. We're living through, I mean, I, I don't, I would equate to what we're going through in our society. I guess, you know, it's a social revolution and we've mm-hmm. seen it before. It's cyclical. But I never imagined that I would live through a period where you have a pandemic, you have so much social and political unrest, you have social separation because of a pandemic and because of social political unrest and people are so polarized. So we have to look at the individual and, and really say to ourselves, what's going on underneath, Mm -hmm. right? What is driving this individual? Again, I work for a great company. So when the pandemic hit, we mobilized very quickly to get Mm -hmm. people out of the buildings, working from home, um, you know, really addressing that with them, letting them know that we care about them and their families. This is how we're going to help support you through this unique time. Plus, of course, I work in healthcare. Yeah. So you would hope that we would do that. On On the social and political front, we also address that because can we look at our our workforce holistically and say we our workforce is a representation of the of society as a whole and so trying to really understand if we take like black lives matter we we had conversations we said we need to have some dialogue around this we need to understand i personally will never know what it is like to be that minority to have that experience, but I can understand it if you can help me understand that, right? I can, I can gain that sense of empathy instead of taking a position. um, And I, I take that position without having any knowledge or information behind it. Um, We have to teach people to be kind of, analytical and introspective in the way they approach things, whether that's human resources or, you know, what's going on in society. We have to ask ourselves questions. Why do I think the way I do? Why did I come to this conclusion? Or why do I have that opinion? Is there something different? Do I have all the information that I need? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. It it kind of, I always kind of equate it to like the temperature in the country when I think back, like during the height of the war on, ter- war on terror, you know, like the today's orange, orange at the airport, you know, like <laughs> what, what's the terror threat and, and this heightened panic and anxiety we had as a society. And, and quite frankly, the hatred that a lot of Americans feel felt towards Muslims. And I think I, I, I even back then, because I had been exploded, it's so interesting. I'll, I will contrast this to, to another portion. So I promise there's logic to my thought, but just being from Bosnia, I've been exposed to lots of Muslims because there's a large Muslim population there. Um, so I, even in my brain as a kid, I was like, you, that's stupid. Why are you hating people? The only reason you hate Muslims is because you've never met a Muhammad. 
You know, like you you have nobody to person you have no nobody to personify it to. Um, but then I even think about it in my own life, in my own experiences. Like for ex- for example, people can obviously tell you're a man, and then you mentioned your husband earlier. So um, even when I think about my um, thoughts towards uh, anybody who was gay when I was younger. It wasn't a dislike or hatred. I just didn't know anybody. So it almost wasn't even, I just didn't care. It was just, it, was, it just wasn't part of my consciousness until I got to college and I actually met people who were gay and made friends with them. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to understand a little bit more. And it became more part of my consciousness of trying to, to, again, humanize people. Did I, I don't know. Did that make sense? I feel like I rambled. A lot it does. It makes total sense because it's very easy, again, to objectify people when you don't know who they are and what yeah. their experience is, right? As opposed to treating them like a human, we, we treat them like an object and we classify them, you're this, you're that, based on our minute knowledge of what that is i will never know what it's like to be heterosexual because i'm not yeah i and i never have been i I don't have that experience i don't have that frame of reference i mean i get it right i mean because obviously there's exposure and that's probably not a, a great analogy but if i go to you know i will never know what it's like to be jewish because I'm not Jewish, but I can certainly learn and understand, you know, the cultural elements, the religious elements of that. Uh, And you do that from, you know, being open to that. We're so, again, polarized right now in our society to put people in boxes. You mentioned, you know, Muslims after 9-11, anybody, you know, who, uh, you know, wore a, 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 a turban or, a, you know, uh, some kind of thing that was not American, oh, you know, they must be a terrorist. I mean, come on, you, you can't make blanket statements like that. It's It's like judging a whole group of people based on what one person did. It's like saying, all Germans are bad because of what happened during the Holocaust. Well, that's not true, right? I mean, we can't make generalizations. We have to understand and put into context of what is going on. Um, That's where we limit ourselves as humans if we're unwilling to do that. We can disagree um, without us, you know, hating each other i mean i have i i'm i know people who are so different from me you know but we connect and again it's that thing where i say oh you know this person is doing something very interesting um that one little thing is what i'm looking for that one little thing that connects us allows us to have the human experience even though there may be 
a thousand things that you know we are total opposite of each other and i i actually had a conversation over coffee yesterday about this very subject of the nuance of life and how the critical thinking aspect has been lost in our society because all the incentive structures are designed to divide us and profit off of us and our emotions um and when you let your emotions run rampant you're not using your head so there's there's a constant battle and this is my personal opinion i hope i'm wrong but if we don't change trajectory we won't make it um i i agree with that i think that again it's an evolution and everybody is in a different place and that's probably this some of that's probably a conversation for another podcast probably. but um <clears throat> you know we have to again be able to open up and and that means that we have to be vulnerable to each other to share and our society is not at a place where necessarily that's yet acceptable to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. right i mean there's a segment of it i mean i think of people like you know uh oprah deepak you know there there i think there is that element but as a whole our society doesn't embrace vulnerability maybe more than it has in the past but we have to be able to do that and part of that is you know gives you the ability then to be empathetic to people even though their experience may be outside of your realm of experience i'll give you an example you know or i'll ask you this question how often have you passed a homeless person and you automatically make a judgment about them in your head oh yeah right all the time we do it all the time the key there is to recognize that you're making that judgment and then question it. Mm-hmm. I don't know their story. I don't know what got them to where they are. Who am I to judge them, right? Yeah. Early in my career, I worked in, uh, I worked for a nonprofit and we did correctional rehabilitation work. And I always said to people, the only thing that separates so the we didn't call them inmates we called them residents but when i would do group sessions or i would work with staff you know the thing i said is the only thing that separates us is they got caught Mm. i can guarantee you did something at least once in your lifetime that could have potentially put you sitting right where they are right they could have gotten you arrested could have gotten you in trouble could have turned out really badly so don't judge them for where they're sitting and that goes back to that whole whole concept i was talking about earlier of you don't need to tell me that you're the leader right when i would train staff in the facility the thing i would tell them is they know you have the key to the door you don't need to tell them that you're in charge they already know that you have to be able to one meet people where they're at that doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable and hold them responsible but when you're talking to them you're not talking down to them right 
You're yeah. talking with them. You're not even talking to them. You're talking with them. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on time, so that might be a good way to to end the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. Um, to to ask the question I always ask at the end of every podcast. You know, you uh, Anthony, you go back to eighteen year old you, wide eyed, bushy tailed, excited about life. Um, knowing all that you know today and knowing all that you know about yourself, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself if you went back to 18 year old you? Well, I don't know if I was bright eyed and bushy tailed at 18. Um, I would say to myself, be kind Hmm. to yourself. Um, you're going to do more than you think you will do. Hmm. All right. Be kind to yourself and you're going to do more than you think you will do. I I feel like that's actually probably advice we all should have given ourselves at 18. Well, hindsight, right, is 2020. That's what we say. We, yeah. we, we think at 18 that we've we've got answers, but we... We have none. We, 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 we don't have... Yeah. I mean, we have some, right? Yeah. We have some from what we've experienced in a short 18 years. But, you know, even at 54, I feel like I have fewer answers than I do questions. Yeah. Well, but that's okay. Of, because, yeah. you know, I, I, hope, I hope throughout the entire course of my life, I continue to learn and grow. Yeah, I agree. Um, how can people get a hold of you? They can reach me through either, uh, I'm open to email. My uh, email is the number eight, Anthony Eaton at gmail.com. If you're doing something interesting, um, you want to know more about what I'm doing, just feel free to reach out, drop a line. Um, I also have a website uh, where I post my interviews and I post articles, and that is www.eaton.com interviews and more all one sentence not ampersand it's a and d uh dot com uh i'm on linkedin uh i'm on twitter i do have a facebook i don't really use it very much um I, i'm not really i guess the generation of facebook you just barely miss being uh, a boomer man i i know it uh but all of those uh you look for me on social media you can google me um reach out perfect and i'll have all that information in the show description obviously um also for everybody info at manhoodpod.com check out manhoodpod.com where the episodes are apple spotify yada 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 uh if you want to get a hold of me if you want to get some constructive criticism keyword constructive don't just complain you got to offer a solution as always feel free to reach out to me and outside of that we'll talk to you guys soon